All right. <clears throat> Your handout has us starting in chapter 24, verse 10. Seriously, right in the middle of the story. I mean, there was no other way to break last week where you have um, Paul being accused of various things in Jerusalem in front of the Sanhedrin, the, um, the tribune, the Roman tribune says, you know, I probably need to get this mess taken up to the federal level uh, to kind of make a uh, Americanization of this. And so he ends up in Caesarea Maritima, or Maritime, which I thought was interesting because in today's uh, morning sermon, Pastor Jim was talking about Caesarea Philippi. And it is so confusing in the New Testament because you've got multiple Herods, multiple Caesareas, and we're sitting there going, where are we? Who are they? What's going on? Because even the scripture does not identify specifically which is which, because at that point, for the audience, they knew who he was talking, the writer is talking about. We're the ones that are confused. So this is why it's our job as students of the scripture to dig in a little deeper. But we are in Caesarea Maritime, Maritima, up in Phoenicia area, today's Lebanon, and in front of the procurator or the governor, Felix. Now Felix, if you recall from our study last week, is not a very nice man. He's a former slave, actually, who has risen up through the ranks and is now the governor of an entire region uh, under the, uh, he was appointed originally under Claudius, Emperor Claudius, and he's now serving under Emperor Nero. His brother is the treasurer of all Rome. And they had been slaves under the mother of the emperor, but had been freed and now are in this extraordinary uh, high-ranking position. The challenge is that even one of the uh, Roman historians, Tacitus, said that Felix uh, ruled as a royal person, but with the heart of a slave. And was extremely vicious and um, not, not a friendly guy at all. But remember, the reason why Felix is even entertaining this conversation, why would he even care about a dispute down in Jerusalem with those Jews who are just making a mess of everything and this Paul guy, why does he even care? Because riots have been breaking out and Paul is the center of that. And as procurator, if there are riots in the streets under his rule, he gets blamed for it by Rome. And about uh, four years after this particular passage of scripture, we don't have it in, in, the, in the Bible, but we have it in the history, history books, uh, Felix is removed by Emperor Nero because of a riot that broke out in Caesarea Maritime between the Jews and the Syrians. There was some dispute, oh, some property dispute. It turned into a riot in the streets. The Jews won the battle. There was actually a battle in the streets. Imagine that. 
It never happens in America. I mean, we're such a peaceful people. But imagine the riots of Portland or Chicago or wherever happening in the streets of the center of Roman government. Felix is a little torqued by this. So he sends out his troops into the streets. And the Jews, the victors, they're celebrating, hey, probably doing their dance in the middle of the streets of pushing back their, their enemy. And he has the Roman soldiers, he, in fact, Felix himself went into the marketplace and said, go home. And the Jews said, no. And he said, no, I'm serious, go home. And they went, no. So he killed them all. That's one way to end a riot. The Jews complained to Nero. And Felix was removed. So that's the kind of guy that Paul is standing in before right now. And as we had seen, the, uh, the Jewish lawyer had, had made his appeal. That's in verse 1 of chapter 24. And they made the accusations. They are accusing Paul of three things. Remember what they are? It's important. Greeks in the temple? Hmm? Was it Greeks in the temple? How do you go Okay, so that would be sacrilege. So he's. Well, that's not a very good pen. Um, got to use the ones in the bag. Use the ones in the bag. <laughs> That's right. Only use the ones in the bag. That's right. Uh, so he's accused of sacrilege. That's not even any better. <laughs> Let's find one that works. Okay. Sacrilege. There we go. A little better. So there's sacrilege. There's also sedition, meaning he's the center of all the riots. And he's accused of being a part of the Nazarene sect, so sectarianism. And we will just not spell the word out so we don't have to show you how I can't spell. So he's accused of sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. Sounds like a sermon. Yeah, sounds like a three-point sermon with a poem. Yes. Basically, it means that he's part of a cult. He's creating religious uh, disruption. Now, the only one that Felix would probably care about is the first one, the rioting. But the others are not, um, you know, they're really not actionable by the Roman government. Now, just for the sake of simplicity, this is not exactly how the Roman rules and law works. But when you think about the American system of law, you have the federal government and you have the state government. There can be a, a law in the state that that state can enforce. Another state may have a different form of the law. We're seeing that right now on the issue of abortion. So some states have one rule, another state has a different one. The Supreme Court throughout the Roe versus Wade as a guideline federally. 
which then dictated to the states. The Supreme Court said, this is a state issue, not a federal issue. So you see the difference. Now imagine applying that simplicity, sorry, it's really simple, so don't put it on a test somewhere, um, that you have the Jews have their rules and their laws, and the Romans have their rules and their laws, like federal versus state. I know it's not like that exactly, but it's close enough for you to kind of get the reason why they tried to, ju to uh, judge Paul in Jerusalem in front of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. But instead, Paul threw out the word, I believe in the resurrection. And the next thing you know, the Pharisees and Sadducees were yelling at each other because they disagreed over that topic. And a riot occurred in the Sanhedrin courtroom and the Roman soldiers had to come in and pull him away, saying this probably needs to be done at a federal level, for lack of a better metaphor. All right, so are we all kind of on the same page here? Is it, is it kind of maybe like um, tribal law, where they're in there? That would be fair, sure. Yeah, tribal law and the Indian reservation right. versus yeah. the federal, because they have a separate set, and if, a crime occurs on Indian land, the Indian tribal system has to come in, but there are certain laws that are federal that cover both sides of the border. So it, it's really all very confusing. Um, but it was interesting, I was, I, I do a lot of various reading and listening to other teachers who are much smarter than I, and on this particular passage, John MacArthur went on a half-hour excursus separate from Acts chapter 24. And for a half-hour, he expounded on Matthew chapter 10. And I thought, what a perfect picture of what Paul is going through. So I'm just going to read you some of the appropriate passages from Matthew chapter 10. And these are in the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 and following. Behold, I am sending you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, of the father his child, that children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Then you drop down to verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. 
Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. That prophecy, that picture, is what Paul went through. And guess what? In today's world, it's what we are being called to do. We are reviled, more so than almost any other time. Well, unless you're in another country, which we just erased half of the board here. They are being killed for their faith. We hear the word persecution go, oh yeah, yeah, persecution. Just put yourself in that room. It's a little different than being in, a, in this room. And it's happening today. Luke chapter uh, 6, verse 22, which is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. He has the verse, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And in the midst of all this, Paul is persecuted regularly. I mean, we've gone through the recitation. He does the recitation of all the things he's gone through. How many times has he been accused of sedition? At least 10 different times in the New Testament, we have seen him accused of being a riot starter. You know, you, you wonder if he should have branded, you know, trademarked it or something, because it's what he's known for. Wherever he has gone, he has spoken the truth of God in an environment that rejects it, both Jew and Gentile. The riot in Ephesus wasn't the Jews. The riot in Ephesus were the pagans who were mad that their sales of their idols had dropped off. Probably, you know, they probably actually calculated on a spreadsheet using Excel. <laughs> we were 22% down from a year ago at this time. Oh my goodness, it's Paul's fault. We need to check out an Amazon ad. Anyway. And yet, in the midst of Paul's distress in Corinthians. Jesus came to Paul in a vision one night, chapter 18, verses 10, verse 10, 9 and 10. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And in chapter 23, just a few weeks ago in our study, Jesus came to Paul in the night and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. He has a calling and he knows what is going, going on. And this is the backdrop when you walk into verse 10 of chapter 24 of our lesson today. Paul stands up before the governor, before the Roman governor, and he says, knowing the many years you've been a judge over the nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Cheerfully. What a lovely word. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> you can verify that I wasn't in Jerusalem more than 12 days. And we can go back, even in our chronology, and figure it out. That he hadn't even been there two weeks. 
and all of this hullabaloo broke out. So it's not like he had been planning the sedition, that he had been working towards it. And they didn't find me disputing it with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you that according to the way, ooh, the way, there it is again. It's not a way. It's the way. He's identifying the, a, a name for the faith that is probably very common in this, this community, in this world. It wasn't called Christianity. It was called the way. The word Christianity became a, a later, um, more common thing. And they call it a sect. And then see what he does. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and the, written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and men. As John Stott put it, Paul claimed, I worship the same God, I believe in the same truths, I share in the same hope, and I cherish the same ambition. I'm no different than my accusers. So if you're going to accuse me of these beliefs, maybe you need to look at the guys who are bringing it to me. And now, after several years, it's been five years since the Jerusalem Council of, of Acts chapter 15. After several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. And I was doing this, they found me purified. So they can't even claim this sacrilege issue as he was unholy. The sacrilege was that he was supposedly brought a Gentile into the temple area. And if you remember when we first came across that, it wouldn't have been Paul that was the one condemned or punished. It would have been the Gentile. The signs were on the wall saying, if you are a Gentile and you enter here, you will be responsible for your own death. That's a little different than beware of dog. <laughs> that that kind of has a, a hit to it. That, you know, if we find you and we figure out that you're a Gentile, well, sorry, you knew. And you can't claim you can't read. Sorry, there's no excuse. There's never an excuse for not knowing the law when the law is available to anyone to see. But they found me purified in the temple without any, any crowd or tumult. Some Jews from Asia, huh, verse 19, they ought to be here. Where are these guys? Where are my accusers? They ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than the one thing I cried out while standing among them, with respect to the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you this day. And that's when the Pharisees and the, uh, the Sadducees begin yelling at each other in the courtroom. 
In other words, this entire dispute is not a civil dispute. It's a theological dispute. That's a very clever argument in front of a governor who's trying to make a civil judgment. And the other reason why Paul is standing in front of Felix is because it has been discovered that he is a Roman citizen. He has standing in this courtroom. If he was not a Roman citizen, Felix never would have allowed him to make a case. He would have had no standing. They would, he would care less. Let the Jews take care of their own. And Paul would have been executed and all sorts of other things would have gone on down in Jerusalem. But he's a Roman citizen and they have to follow certain rules for because of citizenship. Verse 22. But Felix... And the English translation here in the ESB writes, says, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put him off, put them off. Wait a second. The governor, the procurator, the former slave has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. That means he's read Grudem's systematic theology. I mean, he understands, or does it? The Greek is very vague in its translation here. It can mean two different things. It can mean that Felix knew an accurate knowledge before Paul made a presentation. Or it can mean that now that Paul has made his presentation, Felix has an accurate knowledge. We don't know which it is. It could be a little bit of both, probably. That would be somewhat accurate. I mean, if he's been governor for a while, he's heard of the way. There's things going on around Caesarea Philippi. There's things going on around this region. It's not an uncommon thing and not an unknown thing. But the phraseology, a rather accurate knowledge, we see that and we go, ooh, he understands Christianity. Mm, Probably not in the way we would think he would know it. But he sees it in such a manner that he puts off making a decision. And he says, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. Now, do you remember who Lysias is? Lysias is the guy who wrote the letter. In Jerusalem, he's in charge of Fortress Antonia, in charge of a thousand troops. So ten centurions answer to him. He's in charge of keeping the peace in the temple area. He's the one who saved Paul. He's the one who discovered Paul was a Roman citizen. But he's not there. So he's putting it off. Yes? We don't want to be rude, but my wife 
wife's a dog sitter, and we got a house full of dogs, so. We could have quietly laughed, but you didn't have to laugh. That's all right. <laughs> yeah, I said something offensive, and you laughed to leave. Get the behind me. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's fun. Well, as you, if you have, notice the handout in the upper left, right-hand corner, you will find the recording of the class if you go there later this week, and you can hear the rest of it. We have it set up. There's only 150 other hours worth of <laughs> stuff there, so you can just, you know, get, you know, you know, spend the next 10 weeks of your life listening to this class. Anyway, we're glad to have you. So, Lysias, the Tribune, comes down and I'll decide your case. Well, there's no record that that ever happened. There's no record anywhere that Lysias ever made the trip. And in his letter, Lysias already declared Paul innocent. So why is he saying, but I need to have him come here and say what he wrote in the letter? He's already, what, what's the legal term? He's given a... A what? Adju no, uh, where you actually say it in a letter. Um, sworn statement or affidavit? Affidavit. He's given an affidavit. It's a legal binding statement that could be entered into the court record if he wanted to. Felix has read it, but he's putting it off. Verse 23. There's some facts left out of the, uh, the affidavit. <laughs> Let's be accurate here. Um, well, here, here's some other, other thing to think about, however. Think about Caesarea Maritime, Maritime, however you want to pronounce it, I don't know. We'll call it Caesarea M. Who else lived in Caesarea at this time? Who was a Christian? Philip. Philip's been there for a long time. Going all the way back to the Ethiopian eunuch time, it said after he met with the eunuch, he preached his way up the coast to Caesarea. And when Paul came from Asia Minor on his boat trip, where he's now back, he lands in Caesarea and goes to Philip's house. And Philip had four daughters who were prophesied. So we know he, Philip's been there quite a while. So there's an established church in Caesarea M. There's another possible person there coming from Acts chapter 10. His name is Cornelius. Because remember, his, he, he's a Greek and he is saved and his entire household is saved and has Peter come and speak in Caesarea. There's a lot going on in this community around the way, around the faith, speaking to the Gentiles in the region. So it may be that Felix has been hearing these rumblings. He's got his spies out in the streets. He's listening as best he can or as you know if it's important to him now I'm going to fast forward a little bit just in church history just as a side note because I do these rabbit trails 
and you have to listen to them. But in 231 AD, 200 years later, Origen made Caesarea his home and established a theological school. And that theological school ended up known for its 30,000 manuscript library. About 100 years later, the bishop of Caesarea was named Eusebius, who's one of the most famous church, early church historians that we know of, based here. And if you want to fast forward, completely unrelated to period of time, but to the Crusades, um, Saladin, the Muslim, took over Caesarea and held it for four years until Richard the Lionhearted kicked him out. So there's history in this region, significant history, of the church established as far back as Philip. And you have Felix in this area, and in verse 23, he gives orders to the centurion that Paul be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Huh. So probably he's not chained, but he's also not free to leave the grounds. So he can only go to the bathroom with a hall pass. I don't know. Um, uh, Steve Stutzman and I were joking last week, because remember I described the palace itself? It has a wing for the prisoners. We know that from archaeology. We've just, we've, they have discovered a, 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 what was it, a tile or something that was written in there blessing the keepers of the prison in the palace. So most likely Paul is there. And uh, Steve and I were joking about, well, with that pool, 100 feet long, 60 feet wide, Paul got to train every day for the Olympics. <laughs> You know, he just went, you know, swimming every day. And, you know, we're being facetious, but he's not put in a deep, dark, dank dungeon. He's a Roman citizen, and he's not guilty yet. So he cannot be punished for anything. He's just held under guard. Felix, in other words, makes a political move. He keeps Paul out of the hair of the Jews in Jerusalem, but he is not having to make a decision politically or legally on his guilt or innocence. So the story continues, verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Ooh, and I had to stop and go, who's Drusilla? So, yes, I did an entire excursus on Drusilla. Drusilla was the arch nemesis of Buffy the Vampire, <laughs> starting in season two. Oh, sorry, uh, that's the wrong Google result. Um, actually, you, you, you do a Google search for Drusilla, that's all you see is Buffy the Vampire. I'm going, I had no idea, I didn't care. I'm going, okay, how about Drusilla Bible? That will get me a little closer to what I'm looking for. But, wow, I wasted a lot of time. Anyway, Drusilla is a very interesting character, but this is the only time she's mentioned in the entire New Testament. And yet, 
Can you imagine this scenario, the influence that she may have been having over the proceedings? How often has it been in our New Testament story where you have the leader, the king, or the whomever is saying something and the wife comes along saying, I'd like this. And, the, and she whispers in her daughter's ear saying, let's get John's head on a platter. That'll be cool. And the king has to go, well, I told her I'd give her whatever she wanted. I wish she'd asked for a pony. But okay, we'll kill a guy. That's how callous these people were. But Drusilla is the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. Now, if you turn your page in your handout, I am giving you the handout I handed out last week, but I corrected the, um, the spelling of the word Herod instead of making it a, a bird, um, a heron. Um, that's the Herod Agrippa. Drusilla is the daughter. Now, this is why I put this up on the board. And it's again one of my little excurses, uh, side notes. You get a picture of where she fits in the royalty. We have to go all the way back to Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who was the Herod at the birth of Christ. So you have Herod the Great. He had five sons. Yes, I am going to write them all down. So you have uh, Aristobulus, Alexander, Antipas, you'll recognize that name. Sounds like the military. Archelaus. And Philip. Okay. Now, Agrippa is the son of Aristobulus. Agrippa the first. So his grandfather is Herod the Great, which means Drusilla, her great grandfather was Herod the Great. But her grandfather killed, I mean, Agrippa killed his dad. Sorry. Herod the Great killed his dad and killed the other son because when he got near the end of his life, he was afraid his sons weren't going to kill him, so he killed him first. <laughs> Just a great, yeah, yeah, watch out. <laughs> Thanksgiving dinner is going to be real interesting. Um, but when Herod the Great died, they split Israel into three parts. You had Philip in the north. You had um, Antipas kind of in the middle, and Archelaus in the south. But he was a total idiot. 
I mean, just pretty much had stone between his ears. So Rome got rid of him and put in Pilate to rule the area. That's where Pilate came from, was to take over for the bad son, the, the one who wasn't very good. All right. There are three daughters. There is Drusilla, Beatrice, Uh, uh, let's see, Maritime, Timne, and Agrippa the second. This will become important in chapter 26 of Acts because you see the relation. Here, they're brother and sister. And as we'll get to it in uh, chapter 26, he and Beatrice are married. Married his sister. We're watching out here. Oh, he's shaking his head. So it's really very incestuous, very weird, very strange. But this is the royal line that when we get to Drusilla, you go, oh, okay, what's the big deal? Why are you spending so much time on this? Because I had to study it, so you have to hear it. <laughs> All right, let's go back to Felix. Felix was already married. He'd already been married twice. His second wife was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. So that meant by marriage, Felix became a relative of Emperor Claudius. But when Claudius died and Nero became emperor, he didn't have to worry about getting rid of his family relation. He saw Drusilla and fell in love with her. And oh, by the way, his previous wife was named Drusilla too. So he didn't even have to change the tattoo on his arm. <laughs> he just went out and found another Drusilla. It was perfect. When you go into history, you have um, Josephus has this entire section in his history about Felix and Drusilla. While Felix was procurator of Ju Judea, he saw this Drusilla and fell in love with her, for she did indeed exceed all other women in beauty. She was 14. And married. She had been married to Aziz, the king of Amisa, some small territory up in northern Syria. She had been promised to a different northern king on the condition he gets circumcised. He refused to have the surgery, so he didn't get Drusilla. The uh, guy Aziz went, sure, she's beautiful, I'll do that. He becomes Jewish, they get married. Felix comes along, he's the head of everything. And he then sent a person by the name of Simon, a Jewish friend of his, by birth a Cypriot, pretending to be a magician. Simon endeavored to persuade Drusilla to forsake her present husband and marry Felix and promised that if she would not refuse Felix, he would make her a happy woman. 
Accordingly, she acted unwisely, and because she longed to avoid her sister Beatrice, her sister Beatrice's envy, because Drusilla was very ill-treated by uh, Beatrice because of Drusilla's beauty, and was prevailed upon to transgress the laws of her forefathers and marry Felix. Isn't that wild? So you have, by now, she's probably now around 18, 20 years old, and she's with Felix, and here's Paul. She's Jewish, sort of. I mean, seriously, Herod really wasn't Jewish. He was an Edomite. But they adopted Judaism and practiced all the things of Judaism so they could be the kings of the Jews. That's why they did that, so they could stay in power. Felix and Drusilla had a son by the name of Agrippa, which is even more confusing. But he's only a, a side note, almost a, a footnote in history. All we know about him is that he died in, um, when Mount Vesuvius exploded in 79 AD in Pompeii and was buried in the ash and lava. And it's in the records. Agrippa, son of Felix and Drusilla, is in the records. And so he's probably one of the tourist things that you go see, because we don't know who these people were. Um, but he died in that time. His name was Agrippa, obviously named after his brother or her, her brother or her dad. Who knows? Very strange family. And they really didn't have Jewish blood in them. Not really. There may have been some bits and pieces, but Herod the Great was an Edomite. He was not Jewish. Never was. And so the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees allowed? They didn't have a choice. He was put in charge by the Romans. Oh. Yeah, they basically put him in charge. And so he acted Jewish so he could be the king of the Jews. And but he wasn't really? He wasn't really Jewish. I see. Yeah. Okay. See how long it goes when I find one word? <laughs> But seriously, you didn't know any of that about Drusilla. This is one of these these little side notes going, my goodness. And if the pastor of our church spent this much time on a Sunday morning, you'd be going, what in the world? Get to the point. Okay, well, now we'll get to the point. He sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? They didn't talk about the weather. They didn't talk about the local rugby team. They didn't talk about hockey. They didn't talk about anything. They talked about faith in Jesus Christ. And in verse 25, as Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. And when I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. In other words, Paul was preaching the gospel. He preached righteousness, the absolute righteousness demanded by God through the law and the prophets. 
he preached self-control to a man and a woman who practiced lust, greed, and self-indulgence. I mean, they were on the posters for the word, lack of self-control. And on the coming judgment, you go, what's Paul talking about? We can go to Paul's sermon on Mars Hill and find what he says about the coming judgment in a sermon. Here's the quote. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is what Paul has been preaching when he preaches to Gentiles, when he preaches to unbelievers. We have the record. That's uh, Acts 17, 30 and 31. Paul doesn't hold back. And Felix's answer is, uh, you're making me uncomfortable. Um, The literal word is enphobos or enphobos or in fear. He was frightened by what he's hearing. It made him uncomfortable. He said, let's just table this for today. Which means he's thinking there's going to be a tomorrow. We tend to always think there's going to be a tomorrow. But maybe not. This was vividly expressed in a story to me this week. A woman whose son is in the hospital dealing with uh, a spinal infection that basically has paralyzed him uh, from the waist down, but through surgery and other things, he's starting to get a feeling back in his legs and bonded with his um, physical therapist. And they're making progress, and they're very excited about it. And uh, uh, a week ago, physical therapist, see you on Monday. Saturday, she was dead in a car accident. And it hit that family who only know her as the physical therapist. They don't know her personally, but there was a bond there that they were already struggling with all of the health and the, all of that, and suddenly, bang, it's not coming back. You probably all have people you know or situations you've run into or stories you've heard, very similar. We live our lives as if there will be tomorrow. Felix had the gospel of Jesus Christ presented to him in its full power by one of the greatest preachers in all time. And it cut him to fear. And his response was, "Uh, can we table this for now? Thinking he would have it tomorrow. Yeah, he had a few more tomorrows. I mean, there's no question, historically. A couple years later, he was ousted, sent back to Rome. We hear nothing about him from history after that. We hear nothing from Ducilla after that either. 
but he is probably well almost you know lay a wage on it that he's currently in eternity in a very dark place he had his chance when I get an opportunity I will summon you we should never give up hope for those that we love that we care for never stop praying for them because the message may penetrate verse 26 of course Felix was wasn't just worried about his soul in fact he probably wasn't worried about his soul at all he was hoping that Paul would give him a bribe what a lovely man he had hoped that money would be given him by Paul so he sent for him often and conversed with him and you can imagine every time Felix is trying to steer it toward the bank account and Paul is steering it toward righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. It's like, man. You know, Felix is thinking, this guy's not listening. And Paul's thinking, this guy's not listening. They're not listening to each other because they each have a different goal. So when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, desiring Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And I had to go, wait, what? And I'm going to step for a minute and go, two years? Now, this is one of those little trivia marks in Scripture that I have missed my entire life until I prepared to study this. And I came across it a couple weeks ago. I mean, Lisa and I were talking about it. I'm going, what did he do for two years? We have no record at all. Nothing. We don't have the letter to Berea. To the Bereans. Was there ever a letter to the Bereans? Maybe there was. Maybe it was written during these two years. We don't have the letter to the Spaniards. He wrote a letter to Rome. Why didn't he write a letter to the Spain people? We don't know. But for two years, I imagine for two years, Paul just sat there quietly in the corner, not doing anything, not talking to anyone, just being a good boy, you know, good Roman boy. No, this is Paul. But God, in his divine providence, does not tell us. We have no idea. There's certainly a lot of speculation. Goodness. Like, like I like to say, there's a lot of doctorates and uh, master's theses that have been granted for those trying to speculate. But when you think about, I was just talking about who are some of the other people in Caesarea. You've got Philip. You possibly have Cornelius. You have the church in Caesarea. Maybe he was holding Bible studies in his room. Maybe two or three would come over. Maybe just one. And they would say, what are we going to do this week? And the guy would take notes, like you're taking notes while I'm teaching. And then they would go out and preach it. Because Paul couldn't do that. And how far away is Jerusalem? How many days? Two to three. All right? So, if you wanted to walk 
to Sedona. You could. It would be an arduous journey. You'd be a little tired by the time you get there, but if you had a reason to go, you could walk there if you were sturdy. Which means James, the church of Jerusalem, is very close. They could go and visit for two years. And the one other thing that I came across and I went, oh, isn't that fascinating idea? Total speculation. There's nothing written about what Paul did because Luke wasn't there. Luke was down interviewing in Jerusalem and all through Judea and Galilee, researching a book we call the Gospel of Luke. Because until this time, Luke has been with Paul all through Asia. He's not interviewed people about Jesus. Now he's in the region. Ooh, that's kind of interesting. And if you happen to watch the, uh, um, the, uh, the documentary, The Chosen, I'm sorry, it's not a documentary, the TV show, <laughs> and they're very clear that it's a TV show, but their Christmas special opens with the, I, the concept of Luke writing, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, knocks on the door and walks in and says, Luke, I have something. I think there's more to the story that I'd like I'd like you to know. Because when you read the Gospel of Luke, and you read the Magnificat, and you read the details that are found in Luke on the birth of Christ, that had to come from Mary. Obviously the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, but it feels like a first-person account. So maybe this is what Luke has been doing, because we don't have anything for two years. And yet God in his divine providence allows this to happen and gives opportunity for the church that was struggling in this region maybe to get a stronger foothold so that when he leaves they were able to flourish. We don't know. Didn't Paul deserve a sabbatical though? Hmm? Didn't Paul deserve a sabbatical? <laughs> Paul deserved a sabbatical. That's probably good too. Yeah, you need to swim every day and you know, eat, eat the strawberries and all sorts of you know, the other delicacies. Yeah. Is there evidence that Peter and James and John came to visit? Well, we we there's no record at all, and we don't know if Peter is in Rome by this point. He might be. We there. He's gone. He isn't in this. Acts, store, part of the Acts story at all. And James is the head of the church. This is the brother of Jesus, head of the church, not the James the disciple, who was uh, killed by Antipas. I'm sorry, killed by Agrippa. Agrippa killed James the disciple. Antipas is the one who killed John the Baptist. These are just a wonderful family. very big part in our New Testament story. Um, think about it. Well, we have... Yes, I was planning on teaching the next ten verses, but that would take us to almost one o'clock, so I better not do that. Um, let's end our time here. Lord, 
thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word more deeply, more uh, widely, and in greater detail than we normally would. And yet you leave these little crumbs for us to find. And the note that when the gospel is presented and it is rejected, it could be the last time that that person will ever hear that word. And we have to pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that the message that you have in whatever form or fashion, that it strikes and pierces the heart of those who are so in desperate need, those who are lost due to their own decisions, their own making, their own misunderstanding. And yet, the word is there, and if we can be one of those that presents that word, that water to a thirsty and dying world, then maybe we can be the person in the uh, through your spirit to help bring the gospel to those who need it the most. Bless as we go into our, our, work, our week and for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.